we couldn't sell the first one and I bet to this day 30 some years later uh, that equipment is still in the warehouse somewhere and I burned out my best salespeople on top of it so I almost lost the company making this bet had I started the company on that product I would not be in business today Hello and welcome. I'm Pablo Caslimas, and you are listening to The Art of Biz, a show where we share the stories of distinct entrepreneurs, along with their successes, failures, and the lessons they've learned along their journeys. Back to your first point in terms of the skill set that you have that has led to your success, you talked about perseverance. At what point do you have to recognize that you just got a bad idea, you got a bad service, you got a bad product, and you're just knocking your head against the wall uh, pursuing it, that you're, you persevere beyond the point, you're, you're delusional. Uh, and you know, not every uh, entrepreneur is gonna be successful. There's certainly more failures than there are successes, or at least I think there are. Uh, so how do you temper uh, your very first quality you mentioned that you have that led to your success, perseverance, with reality? Fortunately, the first product I picked to sell, people wanted to buy, and there was it solved a problem. There was a need, and everything worked out. What, what was that? It was called a Croy lettering machine. And it was the very first product I sold, and it solved a problem. People wanted it. And I was able to generate revenue relatively quickly. What was the problem that you were solving? The problem was that back then in 1979, there wasn't an easy way to create large lettering, like half-inch lettering, to be put on an engineering drawing or to create a flyer, a newsletter, or um, uh, transparencies for presentations that preceded the creation of PowerPoint and the advent of uh, uh, PCs and uh, similar type software packages. So all of this is before the personal computer. And there was no efficient way to create lettering. And this created black letters on a piece of scotch tape-like material. And you peeled away the backing and laid it down on an engineering drawing or on a white piece of paper and you ran it through a copier and the tape disappeared and you just saw the black letters and it was in its time a needed problem solver because people could create letters ten times faster than any other method at the time. So it saved labor, it was it solved a problem. In the mid 80s Canon Corporation came to me and said we have a real, real interesting technology and we want your company to be one of the first companies to sell it. And I said, what is it? And they said, well, look at this camera. And it was a big clunky camera. And I said, where's the film? And they said, there is no film. It records it on a, uh, on a chip. And I said, what's a chip? <laughs> and uh, it turns out it was the first digital camera. And it was $35,000. And you could take an image with this camera, and then there was this big box that you had to spend another 25000 on. 
which was one of the first modems, and you were able to plug the camera into this box and then plug the box into uh, a landline telephone, and you could send the image from the camera to another magic box for another $40,000 at the other end of the phone line. So for like $100,000, people could be sending an image over the phone line for what we do for free right now with an iPhone. But of course, this is the mid-80s. And $100,000 I had to spend on demonstration equipment. And I thought, wow, this is really cool technology. Little did I know this was the advent of digital camera technology. And photo photocopiers as well? Uh, that was a different space. Okay. Uh, but um, but this, was it the same technology in no. terms of using photo, uh, reproductive equipment? No. Take a picture no, this of an was, image? Uh, this is the way we you know, would cl collect an image today on a camera. Uh, just a digital image. Okay. It was just way ahead of its time. So I spent $100,000 I didn't have buying demonstration equipment. I put my very best salespeople on it. We never sold one. I lost the $100,000. Nobody, nobody wanted to spend that money, and they didn't feel it solved a problem. The pitch was sell it to insurance companies so that an, or to newspapers so that somebody could go out and record an accident or uh, record some event uh, that was newsworthy and get the image in real quickly uh, to the publisher. We couldn't sell the first one, and I bet to this day, 30-some years later, uh, that equipment is still in the warehouse somewhere. So, and I burned out my best salespeople on top of it. So I almost lost the company making this bet. Had I started the company on that product, I would not be in business today. So how did you temper your persistence? Because what led to your success, your first quality you mentioned was persistence. How did you temper that and realize that it's a no-go and it's time to move on to something else? It was a painful decision, but I saw, you know, I went six months, seven months, paying my salespeople month after month, keeping them afloat, plus having money tied up in this equipment. That was a huge amount of money to me back then. And I realized that you know, I'm starting to drown and it's sucking the blood out of the other part of the company. So I had to, I had to throw in the towel. And they, they eventually closed the division and discontinued the product. And like I said, I lost the investment I had in the equipment, plus burned out a couple of really good salespeople because we couldn't make it happen. And they couldn't make it happen. It was. It was a great technology 20 years before it's time. At too high a price, price right. point. So what's the teachable moment for entrepreneurs? Had that been your first uh, venture, instead of Croy letter machine, you had the Canon camera, the early digital camera. Um, your persistence at some point had to be tempered with reality, and you had to say, this is a a dead-end road, I need something else. If I was bootstrapping and I had $100,000 to my name and I went and bought all that equipment and went out and sold it 
and didn't sell any after seven months, I probably would have taken a job with a company and never been an entrepreneur. So the teachable moment is choose the right product to launch because that's not possible all the time. Well, if I had a lot of money, you know, available to me and I had a fair amount of money having successful product lines in place from 1979 until the mid-80s when this product came out, I had the ability to survive six or seven months without going out of business. I couldn't have gone much longer bleeding the way I was, but if I started a business around that product and I took all my capitalization, bet on that product like I did on the Croy lettering machine, I would have lost it all. So the teachable moment is? Sometimes you really got to get it right. Well, you got lucky. <laughs> you got lucky. I mean, I use perseverance in both cases, but one, it took me a while to realize that as enamored as I was with the Canon camera, I couldn't convince the world to be enamored, nor could Canon convince the world to be enamored with this product. So we were all wrong. Well, why didn't you get Canon to capitalize you? Uh, they, did you ask them to put up the hundred grand, or did you just was that not an option? Um, that's just not the way business was done back then. You know, they, all the main Croy did it. Um, no, uh, the way I started with Croy was I had to buy my first inventory as well. Oh, okay. I just didn't. I didn't have the capitalization, so I ended up uh, not having sufficient funds to cover my first check, but getting the equipment sold fast enough to make my Initial check, good. That was well, through called revenue, <laughs> through revenue and yeah, yeah, very quick. In yeah. forty-eight hours, I got them all sold. Uh, had ten of them, sold them in forty-eight hours. Picked up checks, made my check to Croy good, and I was off and running. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't work with the Canon product. Fast forward to today, knowing what you now know about entrepreneurialism, what you're now teaching. Um, if you were to start all over today, knowing what you now know, you can bring with you, uh, what would you do? Well, 40 years forward, it's much tougher to do things the way I did. Because if you keep in mind, when I started my company... Yeah, Abraham Lincoln was president. Uh, felt like it. <laughs> But when I started my company, if I had a piece of paper and I wanted you in another city to see the contents of what was on that piece of paper, I had to send it to you through the mail and the best I could hope for was you'd see it the next day or two. Yeah, FedEx wasn't even around then. Right. So then you would look at the piece of paper and maybe you needed to sign it. And after you signed it, you'd put it in the mail and maybe I'd get it in a day or two. So... The amount of time it took for commerce to take place 40 years ago was really slow compared to today. So I think it's a lot tougher to do business today than it was 40 years ago because the speed at which you have to move and make decisions uh, is just so instantaneous compared to the amount of time it took to do commerce back then. So what would you do today if you were starting all over? today with all of your 40 years worth of experience and trials and tribulations? I see a lot of people trying to start businesses where they have to spend a lot of money building platforms and having large investments of capital 
before they generate their first dollar of revenue. And they're going to other people and trying to raise that money, other people's money, and try and convince people that they're going to make a fortune if they got this right. But it's a long time before they get the platform built and the app built and the software built and everything else built before they generate their first dollar of revenue. My philosophy is I want to be involved in something where I can generate revenue just about the day I decide that I want to be in business. So what kind of business would that be today? Any kind of commerce. I'm still in favor of any kind of commerce where you don't have to put out a huge amount of money before you get your first dollar's worth of revenue. Any enterprise that meets that description is of interest to me. So it could be retail? Retail is a good example. It could be a service business. Anything that you can do, I think you've reduced your risk extraordinarily with your ability to be able to generate revenue sooner rather than later. And I would say that the other big challenge in business right now is hiring people is becoming increasingly more challenging and more expensive. I had an entrepreneur recently tell me that the only business he wants to be involved in is one that doesn't have any blood in it. Meaning that as long as there's no people working there, uh, he's excited about the business because his human resource experiences were so painful and so frustrating that he doesn't want a business that has people. I, well, there's not a whole lot of models that work that way, but whenever you find one, I wish you the best of luck because it meets your criteria. <laughs> well, he could be an undertaker, I guess. <laughs> Thought never interred my money. <laughs> oh, good one. So, now that you're a successful entrepreneur, you have the opportunity to invest in other entrepreneurs. In the investments that you make in other startups or successful businesses, what do you look for? What are the key ingredients that you're looking for to make that investment? A good friend who's a wise investor said to me, my first goal is the return of the principal that I invested as soon as possible. And then the second one is what's the return on my principal that I'm likely to get. But with what degree of certainty am I likely to at least get my money back? So that's the first question that I look for is, is the money just going into a big black hole and I've got a pretty slim chance of ever seeing it? Or can I see where the money is and what's the likelihood that revenue is going to start reasonably soon and I'm likely to get my principal back? So it goes back to what I said before. How long does it take and how much money does it cost to generate the first dollar of revenue? And uh, you've made investments. Um, can you talk about some of your successes or one of your successes and one of your failures? And what can we learn by that? In terms of investments that you've made as a seasoned entrepreneur who has now the ability and skill set to recognize that in others. I lost a half million dollars in one investment I made because a former employee of mine left the company to go to work for a startup and she said, the leadership here is brilliant, the technology is fantastic, this looks like it's going to be great and they recruited me, I'm going to go work there and um, 
she had me so excited about it, I put a half million dollars in the company. Uh, but it didn't take long to realize that it wasn't as represented. Uh, the leadership wasn't as uh, skilled and capable as it appeared on the surface. She found that out pretty quickly. She actually went back to my heritage company and they blew all their money and I lost my investment. I was able to get somebody else to buy my shares for 10 cents on the dollar, which losing 90% of my investment, at least I got 10% of it back. Most everybody else got none of it back. But that was a situation where my due diligence was really based on somebody that I thought had a good beat on it, but was she was very bright, but she was fooled by the leadership as well. And I lost all that money. There's another investment where uh, a graduate in the first year of the Masters of Science and Entrepreneurship program at University of Florida eventually left, got a job, then came up with a great idea in a software application for communication between nurses and patients in a hospital setting. And it was very clever. And it turns out that uh, uh, a couple of us were lead investors in it. We got three times our initial investment back. We still own a good chunk of the company and we may make another seven or ten times our investment yet. So that was a great one. And the teachable moments are the first example of the failure was you trusted a former employee. And I didn't really do your due diligence on the leadership. The second one, I really knew and believed in, I knew the person and believed in uh, the guy who was running this. So the teachable moment is knowing and understanding and betting on the people. I'd rather take a mediocre idea with somebody who's really good and bet on that than a really good idea with somebody who's mediocre. If we could shift gears and talk about University of Florida and entrepreneurship, um, University of Florida is known globally for um, creating Gatorade, which is, uh, to my knowledge, the most successful brand to ever be created at a university, which has, the University of Florida has enjoyed royalties from. And I also understand uh, that the uh, mosquito repellent DEET was also uh, first discovered here at University of Florida. I don't know if there's any royalties with that. But what is it about the University of Florida and the innovation and creation and entrepreneurship that has allowed it to be um, as successful as it has been in products like Gatorade and possibly D, as well as successful entrepreneurs like Marty Schaffel yourself. The University of Florida is a sensational research university. So the, uh, certainly in the state of Florida, it's the flagship university for research. So that's a foundation that's been invested in for a long time. And the University of Florida is known for that. 
The other one is, it's the hardest university in the state of Florida to get into. So the quality and talent level of the students is off the charts. And as a result, um, I'm interact interacting with students who are so bright and so capable and able to accomplish so much. I, I don't know how I accomplished what I did when I compare myself to the students I'm interacting with now because they're so far ahead of where I was that I just have to believe that many of them will blow way past anything I accomplished. And was there an entrepreneur program when you were a student here? When I was a student here, I enrolled in 1970. I never heard the word entrepreneur or entrepreneurship. When I was a student here and I was in the business school, it seemed that all of us were being trained and educated to be the to come out and be the CEO of Ford or Chrysler or General Motors or a company like that. And of course, none of us got that job when we graduated. So I thought it was the wrong kind of preparation. When I now come back here and teach, I spend my time trying to help students understand life in the small and medium-sized business and how to either be an entrepreneur and create one or to be an entrepreneur inside an organization. Because I built my whole company by helping employees be entrepreneurs inside my company. And they were entrepreneurs. They were entrepreneurs within an organization. And some great employees created great parts of the business. And as a result, we flourished and became a very large company. But I owe it all to the entrepreneurs in the organization who had an idea, and I empowered them to run with it, and they brought in great results. And it seems like you're creating the course that you wished was, were available to you when you were a student way back when, uh, bringing in not only the theory of entrepreneurialism and the tools, but also the uh, pragmatic expertise of your guest, guest lectures. So there's probably four data points that I start every class with. And I finish every class with three of the four. I start all my classes with the following things. I say, first of all, I want you to be able to say, after being at the university for at least four years, that my class was the best class you took in your whole career. If I can accomplish that, then I know I did the right thing. So goal number one, I, I'm hoping this will be the best class you took when you were a student. The second goal I have is I'm designing this class to be the class that I dreamed of taking that was never offered when I was a student at the University of Florida. The third goal I have is sometime over the next 10 years, I'll get an email from every one of you at some point telling me how this class impacted or affected where you're at in your life now or what takeaways you've used from that class. And I've gotten those emails and it's extremely satisfying. And then my last one is, if at any time, anything I'm lecturing on or anything I'm bringing into class, you question whether it's relevant or whether you'll use it when you leave the university 
and go into the next, your next phase in life, I want you to raise your hand and ask me, how am I going to use that when I leave here? And if I can't give you an appropriate answer, you need to call me on it. And why do I say that? Because I got thrown out of the University of Florida in graduate school because I kept asking my macroeconomics professor, are we really going to use that when we get out of here? He would put these long algebraic equations on the board and I would say, are we going to sit around in a conference room and solve problems that we're facing in business with that equation, with equations that wrap around this classroom? He said, I don't get it. And by the 10th or 11th time I asked him, he failed me. And the dean called me in and suggested I get a job. talked earlier about the skills uh, ne necessary to be a successful entrepreneur, perseverance, uh, listening skills, um, and knowing when uh, you're at a dead end and you should shift courses and how to capitalize. What skills do you think your most successful students should bring to the classroom to get the most out of what you're offering? I think, first and foremost, students should take advantage of every opportunity to learn that they can. One of the things I do with my classes is the in-classroom experience is a small part of the overall experience I offer. Because every one of my classes that uh, I teach, after the class is over, I host any student who wants to attend a dinner. And we sit around at dinner and talk about any and all issues that are either pertinent to the class or anything else that anybody wants to bring up. And that dinner lasts several hours, and I pay for it. And then after that, for those who still want to hang around, now it's like 9 or 9.15 at night, we'll either sit on the rooftop of the hotel that I stay at, uh, where they have a nice sitting area, or one of the students will host a bonfire at their house and we'll sit around until 1 or 1.30 in the morning and still continue to talk about any and all topics. And if I have guest speakers in town like yourself, uh, then uh, you come along and students get a chance to ask you questions as well. So the classroom may be two hours, but the weekly experience, if you want to take advantage of it, is more like 10 hours. And if I'm a emerging, if I'm an early student in your class, I'm a freshman, sophomore at UF, and I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to work for somebody I respect and admire myself, <laughs> and I have an idea, um, what advice do you have for somebody like me? Stay in school, take the entrepreneurship program, and graduate or pursue my dream with all the persistence and listening quality and capitalization that I can muster. I can't dispute success stories like Steve Jobs or Gates or other people. Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg who dropped out of school and became enormously successful. There are lots of success stories where somebody was really onto something and knew that they could um, make the change and go for it. But 
you've got to be pretty golden with that, I think, to take the risk. Because I think it's pretty tough to then go back to school if you fail. So I think you've got to be pretty solid with that initiative in order to quit school. Otherwise, I believe that the overall networking value, learning value, and maturing value of the university environment for at least four years has, has great value. So you would say to emerging entrepreneurs, stay in school, get your degree. Uh, there's some blind spots that you aren't aware of that you may get exposed to by staying in school and getting the degree and uh, time isn't of the essence that this opportunity will be available to you when you graduate, if not... Again, if there's a compelling reason to go, then you gotta, you got to go. But if it wasn't that compelling and you gave up school and you didn't have a real strong opportunity, you're in the worst of all worlds at that point because it's real hard to get back into uh, the mode that you were in as a student. And you're less likely to complete that. So now you're going to be in this nether world of I don't really have a degree, I don't have a basis to get a good job, and I don't have the resources or the idea to be an entrepreneur, so now I'm going to have to tend bar or uh, work retail until I can figure out how to go in some meaningful direction. Um, what do you like to read now? Or do you listen to podcasts? How are you continuing to be a lifelong learner? I love to read history because I learn from it. I love to read biographies because I like to understand how people got from point A all the way to where they got to. A particular kind of biography, Marty, or business biography, or I like all political. kinds of biographies. It doesn't make any difference because if there is a biography, that means somebody accomplished something. And I'm always curious how they accomplished it. I personally think that the big three or four obituaries in the New York Times every day or every week are fascinating because they really tell a story about somebody's life. I once heard a podcast called Scrambled Eggs and Obituaries, and it was a guy who did a podcast about how every morning he was a professor of Asian descent, and every morning his wife would make him scrambled eggs. Uh, for breakfast, and while he was eating his scrambled eggs, he would read the obituaries in the New York Times, and he, it was the favorite part of his morning. He said, because they were all good stories, too. And podcasts? I like to listen to podcasts in two genres, either one about how people created things, created businesses, success stories, what the pathway was, and I also uh, like podcasts that opine on... Uh, issues of the day, whether it's uh, geopolitical internationally or nationally and domestically. But I like to hear uh, people like Christine Amanapur, Farid Zakaria, different uh, people who create podcasts who have great insight and intellect in international and national political affairs. Uh, YouTube? Uh, occasionally, but I listen more than I watch. 
because I have drive time and I like to listen to stuff when I'm at the gym and working out. So I probably listen to four hours of podcasts for every one hour of video streaming. Uh, mentors, I know you mentor many other uh, emerging entrepreneurs. Who was your mentor? Did you have a mentor developing your business? And how important are mentors? I think mentors are real important. Um, when I first started my company, there was a, a gentleman who lived in my neighborhood uh, who really took an interest in helping me be successful. He was a very kind man, uh, had already retired, and um, I'll never forget how he tried to help me be successful and mentored me. And even to a point when I tried to get my first bank loan, he said, uh, what do you need? I said, well, I'm really undercapitalized. I don't have much of anything. He said, well, come with me. We'll go to the bank and let's see what can be done. He said, collect whatever financial information you have. So put some stuff together. It wasn't my skill set, needless to say. We sat in front of a banker and uh, John said to the banker, well, you take a look at what he's got and what are you going to lend him? And the banker looked at it and said, well, the most I could loan him was $4,000. And John said, Marty, is that enough? And I said, well, I wish I was able to borrow a little bit more. He said uh, to the banker, he said, all right, give him $4,000 on his signature and assets, and then um, I'll do another four on my signature. So I had my first bank line for eight thousand uh, dollars because of John and that act of kindness, and I eventually got him off that line of credit. And um, I cried terribly when he passed away because he really was a very kind soul who wanted me to be successful. And that's, that's something I never forgot, and that's what motivates me to do what I do. admire most in the entrepreneurial space? I like anybody generically who creates an idea for a business and honestly, logically, and creatively executes on it. And I find it fascinating to stare at businesses and try and understand how they got from point A to point B. I just love to stare at them and try and understand them. When I drive, I I make people nervous because my head's always going from side to side looking at storefronts saying, oh, that's an interesting idea. Oh, that's an interesting idea. Hmm, I wonder if they can even generate a penny. That doesn't look like a very good idea. Or how do they, how do they make any money? You know, how's it possible for them to be successful? I'll never forget one. I started this business in my apartment. And after a couple of years, finally was able to rent my first office warehouse space, 1,500 square feet in Tampa. And we were in this little office warehouse strip of 10 businesses or so. And a couple of doors down, there was another business. And I saw them walking in and out of the front door like I did. And I just never knew what they did. So one day I saw them in a parking lot. And I said, hey, my name is Marty. I got this business over here. What do you do? I don't really know. And they said, come on in. We'll show you. So I walk in and they had this display rack of gourmet salt and pepper. And they were in these like gift packages and there were these tubes of 
um, peppercorns, colorful peppercorns, and then there are these tubes of salt, and it said gourmet salt and gourmet pepper. And they were selling them to department stores, particularly during the holidays and mail order. And I said, well, that's really clever. Well, you know, where do you get this stuff? And he said, well, follow me. And we went in a warehouse. And, and by the way, on this display, they had all these testimonials from people talking about how much better their food tasted because they had this gourmet salt and pepper. And I thought, man, this must be the best salt in the world, and this must be the best pepper in the world. I want to know where do you get the best salt and pepper in the world to make all the food taste so good. So we went in the warehouse, and there were these 50-pound bags of swimming pool rock salt and 50-pound bags of generic peppercorns and burlap bags and a bunch of high school kids in this hot, sweaty warehouse filling these little plastic tubes with swimming pool rock salt and generic peppercorns. And the guy was making a fortune. And it turns out we had the same banker. And I said, hey, Scott, what's the story on these guys? He said, they're killing it. You have no idea. <laughs> Rebranding. Re so there is a, uh, an entrepreneur that you admire more than anyone else. You're just, should we add to your skill set then of persistence and active listening um, and making sure you're capitalized, even if it's a creative way through your suppliers, uh, the fact that you are uh, a passionate, you have unlimited curiosity on how business works. That is one of my huge passions. How are you doing it and why are you successful? And where, where's your swimming pool salt and pepper coming from. <laughs> <laughs>